is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, November 13th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton but lost the popular vote. Ever since then, blue states have been joining an effort designed to ignore the Electoral College. It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And so far, it's gotten support from 15 states plus D.C. If support keeps growing, the Electoral College could face real trouble. And that means less power for the states. Well, one group is working to make sure that doesn't happen. They're called Save Our States. And recently I sat down with their leader, Trent England, to talk about why the Electoral College is so important. Today we'll share that interview. And we'll also share a conversation I had with the mayor of Colorado Springs about what makes for healthy local government. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. Today is the first major hearing in the impeachment process, with the House Intelligence Committee having a hearing with Bill Taylor and George Kent as witnesses. Both men previously testified in closed-door hearings. George Kent is the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs at the State Department. Taylor is the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine. Representative Andy Biggs, chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, appeared on Fox News to discuss the upcoming hearing. Well, what you want to do is you want to uh, deal with the witnesses where they sit. Um, Are they biased? Um, What's their credibility? Things that we've seen in the transcripts from the previous hearings, you want to lay that out. Second thing you want to do is you want to attack um, the allegations that they're making, um, the specifics, because there's problems with everything they're saying, and they're not credible witnesses. So the, then that leads you to the third thing. Do they have biases against this president or against this administration? And all those will be on display uh, Wednesday and Friday as these witnesses come in. The House Intelligence Committee is chaired by Democrat Adam Schiff, who has had a high-profile role in the Democrats' impeachment push. Well, the Supreme Court was sharply divided Tuesday as it heard oral arguments in a case over DACA, also known as the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. The case centers on President Trump's decision to roll back the program, which was put in place by President Obama in 2012 through executive action. DACA protects nearly 700,000 young illegal immigrants from being deported. When President Trump reversed the program, federal courts jumped in to block him. The Supreme Court accepted an appeal. On Tuesday, the justices seemed split along ideological lines. The conservatives seemed skeptical of questioning Trump's decision, while the liberals seemed more open to intervening. Notably, though, one liberal justice, Stephen Breyer, appeared skeptical of whether the court could weigh in. At one point, he said, I'm saying honestly, I'm struggling. President Trump also weighed in on Twitter, saying, Many of the people in DACA, no longer very young, are far from angels. Some are very tough, hardened criminals. President Obama said he had no legal right to sign order, but would anyway. If Supreme Court remedies with overturn, a deal will be made with Dems for them to stay. The Supreme Court rejected a big gun case on Tuesday. The families of the children murdered in the Sandy Hook school shooting want to sue Remington, the manufacturer of the AR-15 used by the shooter, over the shooting. The case so far has been about whether the families even can sue Remington since a 2005 law prevented gun manufacturers from being held liable when their guns were used in a crime. 
However, the families of the children who died in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012 argued that Remington advertised in a way that violated Connecticut law. The Supreme Court's decision means that the case will move forward. The situation in Hong Kong continues to deteriorate. Protesters and police have met with violent clashes in recent days, while demonstrators have blocked roads and shut down parts of the city's rail system. Just Monday, a protester was shot by police, and another man was set on fire by protesters after he confronted them. Both men remain in serious condition. Police spokesman Kong Wing Chung said Hong Kong's rule of law has been pushed to the brink of total collapse. Meanwhile, Beijing has accused the U.S. and other foreign powers of fomenting the unrest. These protests began five months ago when Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, introduced an extradition bill that would have allowed anyone in Hong Kong to be arrested and extradited to mainland China to face trial. Lam has since withdrawn that bill, but protesters are now demanding her resignation along with broader democratic reforms. Israel announced Tuesday it had succeeded in assassinating a terrorist, Baha Abu al-Atta, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in remarks. Over the past year, this arch-terrorist was the main instigator of terrorism from the Gaza Strip. He initiated, planned, and carried out many terrorist attacks. He fired hundreds of rockets at communities in the area adjacent to the Gaza Strip, whose suffering we have seen. He was in the midst of planning additional attacks in the immediate short term. He was a ticking bomb. Netanyahu also said, Israel is not interested in escalation, but will do everything necessary to defend ourselves. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad struck back, shooting 190 rockets into Israel, according to reports. Well, we know the media is not a fan of President Trump, but a new report shows that coverage of the president is getting even more slanted. Since Democrats launched their impeachment probe back in September, the big three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, have featured 96% negative coverage of President Trump. That's according to new data from the Media Research Center. During that same period, nearly three-fifths of all Trump administration news centered on the Ukraine scandal. Less than 1% of coverage focused on the economy, despite record low unemployment. Well, up next, my conversation with Trent England about why the Electoral College is so vital to our republic. Tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger government? Become a part of the Heritage Foundation. We're fighting the rising tide of homegrown socialism while developing conservative solutions that make families more free and more prosperous. Find out more at heritage.org. Well, I'm joined now by Trent England. He is the executive vice president of the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, and he's director of Save Our States, a program aimed at preserving the Electoral College. Trent, thanks for your time today. Yeah, yeah, Daniel. I'm really glad to be here. So Save Our States, uh, that's the name of your program, and that name implies that states are facing a real threat to their relevance and their power in our political system. Um, so in what way do, do the states need to be saved? Yeah, no, there, there is a real effort going on to rip up state lines when it comes to presidential elections. It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. You know, people have probably seen, you know, AOC's out there tweeting against the Electoral College. Elizabeth Warren is giving speeches about how the Electoral College should be abolished. But what people might not realize is there's actually this effort, this national popular vote effort, to really 
hijack, almost nullify the electoral college system and Save Our States exists to stop that and to make the argument for the electoral college. So after the 2016, you mentioned uh, the National Popular Vote Compact. After the 2016 election, all these states decided that they really didn't like the Electoral College um, because uh, President Trump won. The Electoral College lost the popular vote. Um, Can you explain exactly what that effort is trying to do and why it's off base? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, it really goes back to the 2000 election uh, when, obviously, Al Gore... He got the most popular votes, but he lost the election because he lost in the Electoral College. And a couple of very liberal law professors cooked up this idea. They they recognized that the the left had actually tried a whole bunch of times to amend the Constitution, get rid of the Electoral College, and every time they failed. So they realized we've got to do something different. And what they came up with is called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, uh, or NPV. And it, it has states agree in a law to ignore how their own voters vote and instead elect their presidential electors based on the national popular vote. So if you think that through, it really, it hijacks the Electoral College to use it to do exactly what the American founders rejected, which is to create a direct election system, a national popular vote, a direct election for president of the United States, rendering state lines irrelevant rendering state governments and state laws potentially irrelevant in the process. And, uh, and they, they had a, a bunch of states adopt this basically in 2007, 2008, 2009. We launched Save Our States in, in 2009, really fought them to a draw. But then, as you say, when the 2016 election happened, all of a sudden there was all this, this political animosity and pressure to, to join national popular vote. And today... We see 15 states plus the District of Columbia that have joined the National Popular Vote Compact. They need 270 electoral votes to put it into effect. States, you know, they need states to join it that control 270 electoral votes. They already have 196 electoral votes committed. So that's why, I mean, Save Our States is doing doing everything we can right now to protect the Electoral College and stop this effort to hijack our constitutional process. So a lot of people who are critical of the Electoral College point out that, you know, candidates seem to spend an awful lot of time in Ohio and Florida and these swing states that get so much attention and other states like maybe the one you live in, Oklahoma, uh, D.C. where I live, not so many candidates coming through uh, to talk to voters. Um, And, you know, some critics will say if we just get rid of the Electoral College, they'll be able to travel everywhere. Every voter will be treated as, you know, an equal. They'll get equal access to uh, the candidates and equal equal input. is that true? Would that problem disappear if we just got rid of the Electoral College? No, it really isn't. You know, it, it sounds great, but this is, the kind of, this is the kind of proposition that the American founders actually made fun of uh, when they were writing the Constitution. These, you know, these kind of utopian ideas. Well, you know, if we just change the rules, then we could take the politics out of politics. What national popular vote would do is really shuffle the deck. So some voters w- who are, you know, are get a lot of attention today would get less attention. But some voters who, you know, some voters who get less attention today would get more attention. But campaigns are still going to take polls. They're still going to have strategies. They're still going to focus on some areas more than others. Really what national popular vote would do is make all of the major cities much, much more important in our process because, you know, Los Angeles County has 10 million, vo- uh, 10 million people in it. 
right? That is more than double the population of my home state, right? And when you, when you take the L.A. Metro, the Chicago Metro, the New York Metro, and you put them together, there are more people than in the entire state of California, right? So national popular vote would shift political power to the big cities. And, you know, the, the thing about swing states is they're just whatever states happen to be the most evenly politically divided at that moment in time. They shift around all the time. It, it, that's constantly changing. It's always in flux. It expands. It contracts. With, if you got rid of that system, you would have really kind of permanent power vested in these major cities. And James Madison actually talked about that at the Constitutional Convention in, in July 1787. He, he pointed out that that would be a really dangerous result of having a direct election of the president. That's why we have the Electoral College. Well, and of course, so much of this effort is based on the idea that blue states are at a disadvantage because of the Electoral College. Uh, Congress, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, has said that the Electoral College amounts to affirmative action for rural red states. That's her words. Um, is, there, is there any merit to that? Do red states get a leg up because of the Electoral College? I didn't know AOC was against affirmative action. Uh, <laughs> but, no, you know, so... In a way, what she's saying is is true in, in this way, right? Political organizing is always harder when people are more dispersed and when people are farther from the institutions of power. So, you know, cities have a lot of power. They have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of power. They, you know, cities, that's where the media are. That's where the government offices are. That's where the institutions like universities are, right? I mean, cities, these concentrations of wealth and power, they have a lot of power now. They had a lot of power back uh, 230 years ago, right? The American founders recognize that. That's part of why they created the Electoral College, because they did, you know, we always talk about checks and balances. They did want to check a concentration of power, to prevent a concentration of power in the big cities and to provide for some balance in presidential elections. So, I mean, in, in a sense, yeah, sure, it, it gives it gives smaller states a leg up because it incorporates the Senate in, in the, in the uh, calculation. And it, it does make sure that you can't build a coalition based on a few big cities and take permanent control of the executive branch. So, I mean, I, I can understand why AOC is frustrated. I mean, look, if, if you represent that wing of the Democratic Party, right, it, it makes them crazy that they have to moderate their position on, say, gun control because they have to win over these knuckle-dragging voters in Wisconsin, right? I mean, that, I mean look, that's, that's how they feel about it, and, and I understand that, but I do think that having some incentives for moderation, it, you know, that's a good thing. And I, I, I wish that, that politicians would appreciate those checks and balances a little more, but we can understand why they don't. Well, and of course, you know, some of the small states are blue states, right? I mean, I, I wonder about states like Vermont and Rhode Island, and, you know, they're not going to be helped at all, right? I mean, the, the compromise struck during the, the, the founding era, right, was, was that small states wanted something, right? So they got the Senate and they got the Electoral College. Uh, so uh, it, doesn't it basically come out even? I mean, small states being red and blue? No, that's, I mean, that's true. It, I mean, it really, it respects states as states. It gives a boost to the smallest states. It prevents politicians from winning just by driving up the score where, the, where they're already popular or building a, you know, hyper-popular regional coalition. It forces them to reach out across the country. I mean, we, we have two big national political parties and a lot of political stability and a lot of very organic coalition building that goes along with that because of this electoral college system 
And, you know, it, but at the same time, it, it makes sense that politicians would bristle at it because it's politicians who are being controlled. It's politicians' power that's being limited by the Electoral College. So, you know, it's, it's really up to, you know, we the people, right? It's, it's up to citizens to say, no, look, we, we actually we value these checks and balances. We value the constitutional institutions that, that you know, put some limits on politicians and their power. Uh, and we understand why why they're going to be you know they're going to be uncomfortable with these things, especially when people lose an election, right? Nobody likes to lose an election, uh, but uh, you know it's it's really up to the people to defend our constitution and to defend our states. Well, a, a growing concern is the security of our elections. Um, interestingly, we've had some cases of voter fraud in the past couple of years on both sides of the political aisle, uh, showing that uh, <laughs> voter fraud does does not discriminate between the parties. Um, does the Electoral College play a, you know, any role in, in guarding against the dangers of vote fraud? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. The Electoral College uses state lines like the watertight compartments on an ocean liner, right? I mean, you know, when the Titanic went down, they realized we, we have got to compartmentalize all these parts of, of an ocean liner so that when you have a leak in one part of the ship— the water doesn't flow through the whole ship and, and sink and, and sink the whole thing, right? The Electoral College does that with our presidential elections because if, if you have, you know, it, it could just be a, a mistake, right? Bad ballot design in Florida or something like that, hanging chads, they're not sure what to do, or it can be fraud, but whatever happens, it's at least contained in the state where it happens. It never spills over. We never need a nationwide recount under the Electoral College. And this, you know, this is a huge protection against voter fraud. It also means that, you know, the the states that are going to be swing states in any given election are also likely to be the most politically divided, right? So in in my experience, it seems like where you see vote fraud is where one party or the other pretty much controls everything. Like very often you see vote fraud in, in primaries because, you know, it's, it's all the Democrats or it's all the Republicans. It's an intra-party fight. Because of the way the Electoral College works in practice, it, it, these battlegrounds are the places where it's the very hardest to commit election fraud because there's the most political accountability. I think that's a, it's kind of a, an interesting side effect that helps us have integrity in presidential elections. Very interesting. Well, Trent England is at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. Uh, check out his initiative, Save Our States. Uh, Trent, thanks for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Daniel. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. All right, we're recording this at State Policy Network uh, in Colorado Springs, and I'm joined now by the mayor of Colorado Springs, John Southers. Mayor, thanks for your time today. Glad to be with you. So Colorado Springs is one of those places that people move to and not away from. Uh, Obviously, it's beautiful here, um, the mountains, the scenery, but um, there's really more to it than just the scenery. Um, It's it's also known as a well-run city. And so I want to ask you about that. You know, what kinds of local policies are attracting people to Colorado Springs? Well, number one, I think the city uh, keeps to the basics. if you look at our city budget, um, a little over half of it is police and fire. Uh, public works is the next big uh, budget item, uh, roads, uh, stormwater, bridges, things like that. 
uh, transportation. We run an airport. We have a bus system uh, and parks. And that's about it. You know, we don't uh, run our own garbage system. We don't run our own uh, ambulance system. Those are things are all outsourced. Um, and uh, I think uh, it's pretty mean and lean, if you will. If you look at uh, the comparably sized cities in America, most of those have a much higher per capita a budget or a, a, a tax burden uh, per citizen than ours. Uh, and I think that people appreciate that. Um, with our increased investment in uh, public infrastructure, that's attracting massive private. And that's what I think the lesson to be learned is. If cities just do their job and do it well and do the, the public infrastructure, people will invest uh, the private dollars. And you don't have to overly incentivize them to do so. <laughs> Well, you know, in some big cities like Chicago, where I used to live, uh, there's not much public trust at all in the local government. Uh, and so I want to ask you, how do you build trust with your local citizens as a mayor? Well, you have to earn it. And one of the things I like about Colorado law, uh, you can't raise taxes without the approval of the citizens. Uh, and that makes you communicate with them. You go out to them and say, uh, this is our need. You may have not thought of it as a need, this, but this is what you ought to want. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to try and convince you that you ought to want it. And here's how we get there. Uh, and that's what we've done the last couple of years. Uh, you know, people don't think about stormwater very much, but we had a lot of legal problems sur- uh, surrounding uh, stormwater. And we spent a lot of time educating the citizens. This is why we had to join the rest of the world with a, a stormwater fee. And they bought in. Uh, And I like the fact that you have to go out, convince them uh, they've got the ultimate choice. uh, But then uh, if they jump on with you, you've got that buy-in. And we've now at the point, uh, our latest poll said 66% of our residents have a high level of confidence uh, in city government. And in contrast to Congress and state governments today, uh, that's a pretty good situation. We talked about having a very lean local government, and I understand that it used to be even more lean and uh, that, that you needed to increase things a little bit when you came in as mayor. Uh, talk about that and some of the decisions that you, as a conservative mayor, had to make to actually uh, uh, increase a little bit of the local government. Yeah, it got to the point where while we're in basic things, we weren't even doing the basic things. And what had happened is we'd had two decades where a very active anti-tax activist by the name of Doug Bruce had convinced the voters to do away with several uh, taxes that had really left us uh, with a very large infrastructure deficit. And we'd done away with a stormwater fee and the EPA was suing us and Pueblo was suing us and things like that. And so when I came in, looking at about a $2 billion infrastructure deficit, it was my job as a political leader uh, to say, hey, uh, our roads are terrible. Uh, This is what we got to do to fix them. This is what we got to do to get uh, on the right side of the law in terms of our stormwater system. It's hard work. uh, But what I like about uh, our system is you have to do it because I've got to convince them uh, to raise the tax. You just can't impose it uh, upon them. And I think uh, uh, it, makes, it makes you engage in political leadership. It makes you communicate with the voters. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously there's risks involved, but that's what representative government ought to be about. 
I want to ask you also about the economic environment, and uh, you talked a little bit about the infrastructure being key to that. Um, how do you attract businesses from other parts of the country, other parts of the state? Um, what is it that that really you you know fosters a good economy here? Well, number one, affordability, and while we're uh, our cost of living has been going up with you know, demand, all the people moving here and things like that. The, fast, the fact of the matter is among the most desirable places in America to live, we're very affordable. And we're ranked the number one uh, most desirable place to live. And if you contrast us with cities in that category, we're very affordable. Good utilities. We have a public utility system. Uh, businesses find uh, utilities very affordable. Uh, business friendly. We don't have any business personal property ta- uh, 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 taxes, anything, anything like that. Um, and um, so, uh, when you add that, uh, uh, employees want to live here. Um, uh, in the cybersecurity world, high tech world, software engineers were. Those are what we're trying to attract. We're competing with Austin, San Francisco, and things like that. We're selling our environment, recreational opportunities, cost of living, uh, low taxes, all that sort of thing, and it's working pretty well. Well, just a personal question here. Uh, What led you to uh, decide to get into mayoral politics? You know, that's an interesting question. All my public service jobs before were the law. I was a... Uh, district attorney. I was the United States attorney uh, under George W. Bush, and then I was the attorney general of Colorado for 10 years. I was really planning on uh, going into private practice and, you know, making up, making a lot of money and things like that. But the city had gone to a strong mayor system in 2011. A very dedicated guy became the mayor. He had no political experience whatsoever. And the, uh, the, it was a log it was total dysfunction between the the council and the mayor. And a lot of folks in the business community uh, said, hey, would you please do this? And uh, uh, I decided to do it. And the, when you get in the, the fight, there's always a risk you may win. And so here I am. Wonderful. Well, Mayor Southers, appreciate your, your time today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, and please leave us a review or rating on iTunes to give us feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, the Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.